Welcome to a very special Jazz Bastard podcast, where we teach young people to stay away from drugs, listen to adults, and sell their cryptocurrency while there's still time. No, in fact, we're going to talk about we. I'm using the royal we. It's just me. It's Pat. Hello, I'm Pat. Mike is gallivanting about Europe and can't be here, so he asked me to do a solo podcast. Not sure when this is going to go live. Kind of depends on what else we find in our pipeline. But I thought I'd do a special tonight on CTI. It's going to be a very idiosyncratic look at that label. I don't present myself as an expert. I don't own every recording made on the label. CTI, of course, standing for Creed Taylor Incorporated. Uh, What I'm going to do is give you a very brief overview of the label, which was controversial in its day, and talk a little bit about its similarities and differences from other famous jazz labels. I'm going to talk about a handful of artists who I think were especially successful on the label and give you some recommendations, throw in a couple honorable mentions, and then wrap things up thinking about what it would mean to have a label with this ideology today. So CTI originally begins as a subsidiary of A&M Records back in 1967. Creed Taylor had bounced around the jazz producing world. He'd started Impulse Records. He'd been at Verve. Uh, He was an influential producer. And in general, he kind of focused on high quality productions that sounded great, that were very carefully engineered, and that in his mind would have a little bit wider popular appeal or public appeal than the average jazz release. When he starts Creed Taylor Incorporated, he kind of puts those ideologies into uh, more dramatic use. He tends to frame players. Sometimes he, well, okay. CTI projects tend to come in a couple flavors. Uh, There's one where it's a very well-produced, smooth-sounding, perhaps too smooth-sounding, presentation of a fairly standard jazz combo, maybe with some electrification. Maybe it's an electric piano instead of a, a regular piano. Maybe the bass is either electric bass or it's recorded so dramatically that it almost sounds like it is more prominent in the mix than we're used to from the classic recordings of the 50s and 60s. And then his larger scale productions where he brings in other horns, woodwinds, sometimes strings, 
Often Don Sebesky is the guy doing the arranging here. Later on, Dave Matthews would do some big band arrangements and funk arrangements for him. But Sebesky is probably the, the name best associated with CTI, best known for working with them. And these productions would put a excellent jazz musician or two in a context with typically an absolute blue ribbon rhythm section and then larger forces uh, that would frame and accent what they were doing. Among other artists, one of the first people he works with is Wes Montgomery, and he hears Wes and believes that Wes has a sound that could reach a much larger popular artist and starts framing him in these arrangements that are a little bit more elaborate. I've never really gotten into Wes's recordings uh, on A&M, and from what I've heard, I I don't know that necessarily Wes was a talent that thrived uh, artistically in those environments, even though clearly he did so monetarily. I mean, he clearly, these were very popular productions and he finally was making money, which as a man with a large family who started his professional career on the national stage fairly late in life was a very important thing. But he goes on and and finds a whole roster of artists and makes a number of fairly influential albums that have always kind of had a mixed reputation. And I've done my best. I've not really found a lot of stuff in print from that era when they first came out from, let's say, 67 forward, I'd say probably the high point of CTI is 67 through, say, 75. CTI is an independent label. It's from 70 to 75, but I think a lot of the early A&Ms uh, with the CTI as a sub-label are kind of characteristic of what he does and, and belong in that group. At the time, everyone says they were controversial. Critics didn't like them, or at least some critics didn't like them. Uh, it was considered too commercial, too smooth-sounding. But I've not been able to dig up a lot of those quotations. And now when you get retrospective articles on CTI, their greatest hits packages, collections, the reviews tend to be fairly positive. And, you know, I'm going to argue that I think there's a lot of merit in these recordings taken on their own terms. And they're worth thinking about for jazz fans today. But, you know, if you've got some favorite quotes against the music or you yourself are a a hater of CTI, uh, one example I think certainly would be that we love to talk about the Penguin Guide to Jazz which went through several editions. At least one of the Penguins is now no longer with us. Their writing is, is tends to be dismissive of CTI and its emasculating sound. And also their print editions come out during a period when a lot of CTI recordings were out of print. Just briefly, a little more on the history. So he forms a subsidiary label in A&M in 67. He goes fully independent in 70. At some point, he realizes he, he's not successfully distributing his own records. He hooks up with Motown, 
as a distribution uh, helper, and then there is a falling out and a lawsuit, and he ends up uh, declaring bankruptcy. During this period, he founds another label, Kudu, K-U-D-U. It's kind of a subsidiary of CTI that explicitly targets the so-called urban market and features a slightly different roster of artists, but a lot of crossover among the rosters. I'm going to talk about one artist that I've listened to uh, several recordings uh, by on Kudu. So there's that whole other uh, experiment going alongside CTI. I think one thing to say about this checkered career, it, it has a couple implications. First, I think that we can talk about Creed Taylor trying to commercialize jazz, and I think that's fair. He wanted it to reach a wider audience. I don't think it'd be fair to call him mercenary or trying to exploit jazz. Generally, if you want to make money, you don't try to exploit jazz. You run screaming from jazz. You're never going to get rich promoting jazz, no matter how watered down it is. I mean, there are a couple exceptions. I guess, you know, Kenny G would be somebody who really made bank on some kind of diluted version of at least instrumental music that has some tangential relationship to jazz. But, you know, that's that's the, the needle in the haystack, the one in the million moonshot. It's just if you want just to make money on music, you don't deal with jazz, period. And I don't think that was ever a, a good way of seeing what he's doing. Another thing to say is that, you know, these bankruptcies, these breakdowns, these various schemes to buy back the catalog, which tended to fail on financial grounds. You know, Creed Taylor is, I think, a guy with a vision, a guy that successfully brought jazz to a larger audience. He's not a brilliant businessman. He's not somebody that made millions on this. He did enable musicians to get paid better than they were at the small independent labels. We'll talk about Freddie Hubbard in a minute. That was a mixed blessing, though uh, when he got paid even better, things really started to go south for him. But yeah, I I don't think it makes sense to see that's what he's after. I I think it's somebody who loves instrumental music and wants to promote it to, you know, a little bit larger audience than just the aficionados. And I I think the other thing to say about it, one reason I think the label, it has some problems and sometimes his interest misfires, but he brings his own obsessions to the label, which includes this weird idea of jazzing the classics. And I think sometimes it works pretty well. We, we've, uh, on the podcast, talked about a few CTI albums over the years, and we talked about Hubert Laws' Rite of Spring, and Mike and I both enjoyed that record. You might have, you know, I mean, from the classical side, you might think, well, these are just uh, abominations. <laughs> they oversimplify uh, classical music, turn them into simple riffs. Uh, from the jazz side, you might say, well, this is going to inhibit people from swinging and expressing themselves and mixing the highbrow with whatever jazz is. But if nothing else, I mean, it was just something that fascinated him. I mean, I, again, I don't think you can explain this attempt. It may have had some appeal to a middlebrow audience. But again, if you want to make money off middlebrow audiences, you, you can just do Mitch Miller. You, you, you don't need to try to combine jazz with classical, which itself is not a particularly popular form of music and certainly not in the 70s. So, you know, it, it, I guess my point being that there's a difference between trying to find a broader audience doing what you love and just trying to exploit an audience or make money any way you can. And sometimes I think our our urge to see things in binary terms, especially in America, to simplify things, to find the root cause of things that may not have one root cause, we, we've kind of boiled down everything, simplifying it to, well, you just, you've just got to maximize the number of zeros after your bank account. I mean, this, the only way you can measure success has got to be monetary. If you're at all interested in money, you have to be absolutely interested in money. There can't be any secondary interest. You either are or you aren't. And this is not that way with most people. Most of us like money to some degree or another. Most of us are willing to do certain things to get more money than we, you know. But at the same time, many of us have a stopping point where we would not do things to get even more money. Or we'd hate what we're doing so much that we'd rather do something different for less money. You know, it's 
it's, it's a mixed uh, mixed motives. And I think with Creed Taylor's project and CTI, it just it doesn't make sense to see it as a purely mercenary enterprise at any level. And if it was, it was a terrible scheme because, again, you're not going to get rich promoting jazz for the most part. You might do better than some really hardcore people do, but you're not going to get rich. At least if you are, you could have picked a lot easier way. So, again, I just think that it's kind of a dead end if you want to talk about the music. There are a lot of things you could say that, you know, convince me that you don't find it artistically valuable. And I I get that. And in fact, it's been probably the last 10, 15 years that I've gotten more into this catalog and I still have mixed feelings about a lot of it. So those are just initial thoughts about this project, this label, what I think uh, Creed might have been up to. I, I guess, and I, I don't know if I've gone through my points in an orderly way, but the other fallout of Creed's bankruptcies and lawsuits uh, uh, and the catalog ending up with Columbia Records, which is a subsidiary of Sony, which I don't know whether they're owned by something even bigger now. Maybe it's Universal Music now. I just I just cannot keep track of it. CTI in its afterlife has not necessarily been treated all that well. As a catalog, it is dipped in and out of print and uh, a lot of, of, of the releases on it have not returned to print. And it's not been given the kind of reverence that, say, a Blue Note has been. And, you know, we could talk about reasons for that, or you, maybe, brother, we, we can't talk about it because I'm recording this and you're listening to it afterwards. But, you know, if you wanted to send comments and emails or thoughts, I mean, I, you know, I'd love to hear your theories about it. And maybe you don't think it was worth preserving. But I do think it's kind of whatever you want to see its legacy as has been harmed or diminished or hidden by the kind of scattershot approach to reissuing the music. And so a final point about that is is where I've gotten into it more deeply was in two phases. The first was 10, 15 years, 20 years ago. I got into a phase of of finding people running blogs where they were dubbing often out of print vinyl albums and posting them to the internet. And I'm not doing that at the moment. I've got to admit, it's, it's a little fuzzy to me. Is it like, is it good to buy a used record and not to download a free i mean it's good in the sense it keeps record stores open i love record stores but it doesn't help the artist either way right so i mean it's if your record's out of print unless you just find the guy's address and send him a ten dollar bill or whatever you can't you can't give money to the artist so whatever your thoughts and i i've tried to move away from it myself i think there's enough problems with that model i don't want to support it but that was one way I got, you know, kind of filled out the catalog of what I'd had. Again, because growing up, a lot of these things just weren't around. And then uh, secondarily, as I've gotten into vinyl, as you may have noticed in the last, uh, during this period of the podcast, CTIs are, if you're interested in the music and like it, fairly collectible. They were printed in relatively large numbers. There's a lot of them out there. Non-collectors, non-obsessives bought them. And what happens when somebody who's not deeply into music buys a record is sooner or later it ends up in a used record store or a (laughs) Goodwill store, right? I mean, they don't tend to keep their collections. So there's a lot out there. Some of them are in fairly good shape. The prices are not ridiculous. You know, I love going to a record store and it's like some fairly obscure Blue Note release, mono, very good. So it means it's rough condition, not not unplayable, but fairly rough, $400, you know? (laughs) The cover's cracked and everything. It's just, you know, that that label has become an an obsessive grail for people and and these original prints that I I think would be kind of difficult to listen to because they're in fairly rough shape. Just go for incredible Boku bucks, whereas you might run across a CTI release and it might be 20 bucks, it might be 10 bucks, it might be 30 bucks, and they're often, you know, near mint. 
recordings because, you know, the 70s is a less glamorous period of time. I don't think it's got quite the romance for jazz collectors that the 50s and 60s do. And again, CDIs has a mixed reputation and they're fairly common. So even though a lot of these are kind of hard to find in print or difficult, you might actually spend as much on a CD issue as you would a decent LP. If you got a turntable, I might, I'm not going to make some set argument here. I have a lot of AB in comparison, but in general, my thought is, is that they, they sound better on LP. This is a, a, a label that knew how to make great sounding records. And they're just, you can bathe in the Sonics if you're that kind of ear whore like I am. And sometimes just like to listen to pretty sounds. Before going into the individual artists, it's worth pointing out that there are some similarities between CTI and a label like Blue Note. One of the most striking is, is that like Blue Note, CTI used a repertory company of players. It's a tighter repertory. I mean, the label exists a much shorter period of time. It puts out many fewer releases. I don't think that, that Creed was stockpiling recordings he didn't even release the way uh, Wolf and Lion were, where you know, you'll have two or three Wayne Shorter albums that come out 10 years later, 15 years later, because they just didn't have time to release them when they were recorded. You just don't have, like, to my knowledge, hidden gems like that in the CTI catalog. But they tended to use a rotating cast of, of players. They'll appear on each of those projects. Most notoriously, Ron Carter plays bass on almost every goddamn CTI release period. Obviously, he's an excellent bass player. They tend to have top-tier players. Herbie Hancock is keyboard on a lot of these, on a lot of these releases. Bob James, to less impressiveness, but, you know, he's, he's at least a very functional player at this time, comes in. But but Herbie's on a lot of this early stuff, and I think a couple of his most memorable solos are on a couple of the early uh, A&M CTR releases. Jack Jeanette, there is a tendency, I mean, I'd say the percussionists, Billy Cobham, whatever, you know, they sometimes pick people who are maybe a little too fusion-y and tightly wound up the butt for my taste. I mean, they tend to be very technical. I mean, Steve Gadd, I think, is on one of them. Players who maybe... I would like to let the music breathe a little bit more, but they're certainly absolute blue ribbon players, right? And then in terms of a horns, Freddie Hubbard releases a number of solo albums, but also appears on other CTI musicians' albums. Hubert Laws has a lot of leader dates, guest stars on a lot of CTI dates. Paul Desmond leads several dates for uh, CTI, both in the A&M years and later, guest stars to great effect on a couple. So there's a core of, of lead musicians. George Benson releases a whole bunch of his own stuff on CTI and also guests on a number of CTI. So this, you know, it's a fairly tight cast. These guys are all just absolute incredible players. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I don't know that I have feelings about how technically great, say, Kenny G is or a lot of the current smooth jazz artists or the ones of you know, the generation or two ago. I'm sure they're fine players. I, I don't know. But these guys, whatever you think about the music and how smooth it sounds or whatever, or commercial, are just absolute monsters in their fields. Creed is using a lot of the best musicians. And I, I assume he was able to do this in part because the returns are a little bit higher than, say, playing for a Blue Note. And uh, again, I mean, these are not throwaway projects that are putting you in front of a, uh, a bed of 
strings or something and just trying to make a quick buck. And just it, to speak to the recordings one more time, I, the other thing to say about that is that you know this is the era of live musicians recording to analog tape. So when they made a commercial recording, it was like with the best studio musicians available live on tape. Now, they weren't necessarily playing live with the soloist. I mean, there were different layers sometimes. They did produce the albums in that sense. But, you know, it's real live musicians playing to a real live analog medium, and they sound fucking awesome. You may not like what they're playing, you know, whatever, but this is not a bank of synthesizers and a drum machine. You know, this is uh, real human beings. I'm not always sure about the drummers, but I'm sure they are really, you know, playing live music, beating heart to it. And I think looking back on that era of recording now, there's a great nostalgia for it because it sounds so incredible. And it's just, you know, you don't get that sound that often anymore. So this repertory company uh, is a similarity. Uh, Another similarity with Blue Note and CTI is that both labels, Blue Note went through transformations, but but worked hard on having a visual identity. Uh, Blue Note's best known for the Reed Miles years, but before that, various artists were doing things, say in the 50s, Gil Malay, who played baritone sax, also did some cover art for him. After the Reed Miles era, they went to more sort of 60s-infused styles. They had more photographs of musicians. But they try to have kind of a house look. CTI was very distinctive, and maybe it took it a little too far in that the font's always identical. The layout tends to be identical. The early ones were gatefolds that had a photograph going over the front and the back, tended to be framed. Within the, the, the album itself, it was kind of a cutout rank, rectangle. These, If you look inside, the old original issues are like, you know, write up, send a postcard to so-and-so in $10 or whatever. We'll send you a frameable version of this photograph. So they were kind of selling it as like you can decorate your bachelor pad with these photos. And there is very much CTI records tend to look the same, same color spine. They all tended to be gatefold. The use of photographs rarely featured musicians. More often they're abstract photographs of varying, sometimes your landscape, sometimes they're just like, here's a, is a door to a train car. Here's whatever. The colors tended to be bold and simple. The, the photographs tended to be of bold, simple subjects, just in terms of geometry. So they were trying very consciously to be collectible in that sense. A big difference from Blue Note was Blue Note, in its high period, tended to focus on originals by the musicians, and then occasionally either songs from the jazz repertoire or standards. CTI has got a very different approach. There are some standards there. But they also focus on contemporary pop songs that have been turned into jazz and some, as I mentioned before, classical adaptations. So they're just, you know, it's just a little bit different A&R, a take on how to put together a recording. But again, kind of a distinctive take in that from record to record to record, these patterns continue. I mean, there's clearly a house style. Thank you. 
what makes CTI sound like the 70s instead of the 60s? The production style, I, I don't have a lot intelligent to say about that other than it sounds smoother. There's less emphasis on the transients. There's less a sense of these are instruments might sound in the way they might if you were close to them in a club. There's more of a sense of they're clear. There's not like lots of wild effects on them, but just everything is very glossily presented. CTI uses electric instruments. Most of the time, the guitar is sped up jazz guitar, maybe slightly twangier. You know, George Benson, it's not Jim Hall, but he ain't Jimi Hendrix either, right? I mean, it's not distortion, not effects, not really a rock guitar sound when guitars are used. They aren't used extensively aside from George Benson guest spots and George's own recordings. This is not a guitar-driven sound. There are a couple exceptions. Aeroto's fingers, you know, there's, there's a little bit more of a rock-sounding guitar on that one. But for the most part, that's not what they're after. They use strings occasionally and lots of use of brass and woodwind sections. I, I don't think I characterize what they're doing there as easy listening. I think that the arrangements are a little bit too into tension and release. There's some dramatic entrances. It's not just a kind of smooth, murmuring mezzo piano in the background. I mean, you know, there's events. Things happen. Startling textures jump out of the canvas and then fade back into it. Uh, Sebesky is not trying to lull you to sleep or chill you out with what he's doing. He is trying to sound smooth. Everything is, is carefully presented. Everything is in good intonation. You know, it's, it's very professionally done. It's adult. It is it's not kitty music in any sense, but it's not trying to be just smooth, soothing, um, one volume, uh, no surprises, no ambitious voicings kind of stuff. It, it is more ambitious than that. But, you know, it, it's a very different sound from a, a label that's dedicated to bringing you the live combo experience, as to some degree, like a Blue Note would be, or a Prestige would be, or a Contemporary would be. Okay, enough of the background, enough of the generalizations. If you're new to the CTI catalog, here are some recommendations. If you aren't, you can just make fun of me in the comments because you probably know more about them than I do. If you're a real fan of theirs, you know, like I said, I haven't listened to every recording. I listen to a lot. Uh, here are some artists I recommend looking up on it. And, and in a sense, I say my thesis is that a few of these artists maybe do their best work or thrive especially well in these settings for various reasons and um, for differing reasons. with George Benson. He's an artist I really have not listened to until the last five years or so. And it, it's because most of us know George from this masquerade and going forward from the mid-70s forward stuff, where the focus switched to his vocals and where the production style was extremely smooth. Not that he has not gone back to playing jazz from time to time, not that he's lost his chops or something, but just, you know, that's, that's the way he's made his money and made his fame. Um, I was not really aware of his CTI recordings uh, both on AM, CTI, and CTI proper. I started running into these and realized I quite like them. There's a lot of fairly hot guitar soloing 
on these with a proviso always that CTI, one of the things they did to get back to the generalizations, which I promised I was going to leave, is that they often use fairly simplified VAMP sequences for the improvisation. They're, they're a long way from bebop. It's not exactly modal. I wouldn't really call it modal. It's more like a rock vamp, but just a couple of chords. And the musicians who thrive in this settlement in these settings tend to be people that are good at playing on vamps. There are exceptions. We'll get to a couple in a minute, but the older generation. But for the young generation, that's, that's how these things are put together. So uh, among the albums I rec- recommend, Beyond the Blue Horizon, the main thing to keep in mind there is Ron Carter gets a little bit weird from time to time. You might find that annoying. But overall, it's a solid album with some fine performances on it. Body Talk, Bad Benson, and Good King Bad, you know, they, they like the word bad, connect with Benson, are all reasonably strong jazz funk workout albums. I think Body Talk is the one I like the best. There are some diminishing returns as that sequence goes on. You have to like funk. Uh, I do like funk. He plays pretty hot guitar on those. There is more of a commercial bent to them. And then the album I used to see in bins as a kid dozens of times, over and over and over again, always passed it by, White Rabbit. I think this is a paradigmatic cray-cray CTI recording in that it's, if you want the full Sebesky madness, that's the Benson album to pull out. The, the White Rabbit cover is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. I mean, it's well done. There's some good playing on it, but it's so fucking over the top. I'm just rolling on the floor every time. And I love it. I mean, I, I, it is entertaining music, but if you take it seriously, you're going to explode. And, and the record, for the most part, is just this really, it's taking these pop songs, a couple pop songs, I think it's like California Dreaming or some, you know, and just turning them into kind of mini operettas and this becoming so wild and baroque in the arrangements and so willing to go for the gusto with you know, mariachi trumpets and the rest of it, it it's it's both celebrating and to some degree i think kind of gently mocking the popular tunes of the time it is completely owning them and turning them into these elaborate mini concerto jazz performances and i think they're a hoot and i think they're very enjoyable I just, it's a fun record. It's a funny record. And I love it. I've always talked about this. And I'll keep beating the drum till I'm dead. The, the jazz, I think, is fascinating when it, it's musicians of great talent walking that liminal line, doing artistic things to popular music, rather than just trying to do all originals or be third stream or whatever, or rather than just like playing a melody over and over again and making a pop instrumental. It's when that tension's there, I think it can really get fascinating. And boy, the tension is is off the charts on White Rabbit. So highly recommend it if you've got a sense of humor. Uh, and of course, these things just, I mean, they sound incredible. A certain kind of 70s production reaches its peak in this time. And, and, and a decent analog copy, a decent record copy of any of these on a decent record player is just ear candy.
Okay, let's stick with, with the younger generation here. I'm going to go to Stanley Turrentine next. Turrentine, the tenor player, is somebody that I've grown to appreciate a lot more as I've gotten older. There's nothing innovative about his playing. There's nothing all that harmonically daring. He's just a very fine player. And he's very distinctive. He's got his own voice. And I think he made a lot of damn good recordings. Uh, he makes a huge number of recordings for Blue Note. Then he moves over to CTI. Uh, his best-known recordings are probably Sugar and Cherry. And those are both kind of examples of CTI doing the, the glossed-up combo recording where it's mo mostly not all that different from a blue note ensemble and instrumentation. You might throw an electric piano, the bass is a lot more prominent, and everything's glossier. And, you know, you make an album with probably slightly harmonically simpler songs, and it's, you just go, it's just the combo playing for 40 minutes. Those are both excellent of the kind. I've never heard, heard The Sugar Man. Might be good, might not, might not be. He does an album with Astrid Gilberto called Gerberto. Gilberto with Turrentine. You know, he's a featured soloist on several of the numbers there. It's basically a bossa pop album. If you like Astrid, I think you're going to like this fine. It sounds great. This is not where you learn about Stanley Turrentine. And then his over-the-top uh, big production album on CTI, which I think is just great, is Salt Song. Rarely do I think the arrangements and the player come together as effectively as they do on this album. I highly recommend it. There's a little kind of a gospel-like chorus on at least one song. It's experimenting with some soul moves. It's by no means a straight-ahead combo recording. I think it's awesome. I'd love to hear your thoughts about Salt Song. But for me, it's kind of a, I came to it fairly late. And as much as I like his more straight-ahead albums on the label, I think Salt Song is probably the pick of the litter there. Okay, now I'm going to come to who I think might be the paradigmatic CTI artist, and that's Freddie Hubbard. Uh, we had a whole episode on Freddie uh, a ways back. Back in episode 95, we did a whole uh, show devoted to Freddie, both as sideman and as leader. And we talked about his best-known CTI release there, Red Clay. I, th I think Freddie more than, I, you know, like several of Freddie's Blue Note albums quite a lot. I think Ready for Freddie's awesome. I think... Uh, Open Sesame with Tina Brooks is a very, very good album. Uh, I like Hubcap. You know, it, several of his records, I think, are very good Blue Note releases without necessarily taking off. 
you know, into that super upper echelon of the best. But Freddie was obviously an incredibly gifted hard bop player. He could also play avant-garde, as we discussed in the special. You know, he, he's on albums like Ascension and Free Jazz. But to me, Freddie really finds his voice on CTI because as, among those young musicians, he had so many special effects and growls and such an aggressive and creative rhythmic sense that he was especially good at playing on these relatively simple harmonic vamps. And he has an incredible tone during this period. And CTI just butters it. And it's just gorgeous sounding. And these records are gorgeous sounding. So he records a couple more or less straight ahead records. Red Clay, it's got that, you know, produced sound. There's an electric keyboard, but it, it, it's more or less a small jazz combo with the title track, as we mentioned, being based on the, the standard Sunny. Very, very strong record. He does Straight Life, which is a LP composed of comprised of three songs. And that's you know, another thing to say about CTIs, like many LP companies, you know, they're not afraid to put out a 30-minute record. I mean, they, they tended not to give the listener a lot more ever than 40 and often stopped around 30, 35. You know, they tended to be short, highly produced affairs rather than a lengthy, lengthy workouts for the most part. I think Straight Life is fine. It's just that, you know, you have to be ready for 17 minutes of one song. And it's well done. Both those albums uh, feature Joe Henderson. I mean, they, they are bedrock of the kind of slightly electric, slightly modernized jazz uh, playbook. And then he re- uh, records this album called First Light. And that's kind of his crazy CTI super produced album. As a kid, I remember not liking it that much. I still have mixed feelings about it today, but it is the album that, that Freddie manages to win a Grammy for. And I think if you want to understand crazy Don Sebesky stuff, uh, the ambitions and the limits of what CTI is about. You have to listen to Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, which was a hit for uh, Paul McCartney, their version of this on First Light. Because, I mean, that is a literal fantasia on that record. I mean, he plays a melody, and again, first light, the tone is just incredibly burnished. Just flowing, molten, golden sound. I mean, it's just hard to imagine the trumpet sounding that pretty. It doesn't sound gormless, it doesn't sound edgeless, but just, you know, a gorgeous, rightful sound. And the arrangement goes all sorts of places. It, it's it's not, again, it's not elevator music with, with strings in the background and the melody tootling over it and uh, nothing really changing or developing. It's it's wild. You might not like it. You know, you might, you might think it's overcooked. You might think it's melodramatic. I'm still not sure that First Light's ever going to be my one of my favorite Freddie albums. I think it's probably a little leaning towards the vices of CTI, a little bit overdone. But, you know, it, it's, it is his showpiece on the label as, as a production, right? A CTI production where you have lots of instruments and layers and, and arrangements that go all over the map. And it's like, how the hell did I get here? Oh, we're back at Albert, Uncle Albert. How did that ever happen? You know, McCartney himself was interested in this idea of musical suites. And this just with, with a much more advanced vocabulary. I'm not saying that Zabeski's a better musician than Paul McCartney, but 
in terms of arranging, in terms of knowing tricks from the classical world and the jazz world, harmonic things. And, you know, he's, he's just got a vocabulary that he's working with from his background that enables him to kind of make a suite in a way that's maybe a little bit more musically complex than most of what McCartney does, which is string together melodies. And again, love me some Macca. Not, not ripping on Macca, just saying that uh, as, a, as an actual arrangement, this is probably more impressive. So that's kind of an amazing track. And then he does several other records. I've never really gotten much into Keep Your Soul Together. I'll have to keep going back to that one. It's kind of the last of the productions. Skydive, uh, to me, is mostly notable for Povo, which is a very lengthy a workout on uh, a chord or two that I just think gets his weird kind of momentum with like little flute stabs and the ongoing ostinatos and the string of solos. It just it kind of motors along and ends up going somewhere. I feel like the sum of that particular performance is greater than its parts. And it is funky. And the rest of the album is fine. It is, there's some live albums on CTI. I've heard a couple. To me, that kind of, I just don't get the point of that. I mean, it, as a commercial enterprise, as a way of publicizing what the label was doing, as a way of letting these guys kind of blow fine. But what CTI is good at is not making live albums, period. It's just not the skill set of the label and producing a great live album do not match. And so, you know, you whatever, there, there they are, but, but big deal. And then Polar AC, which is one I have picked up, is kind of an odds and ends compilation that I, I, I assume CTI put together after uh, Friday Kid left, left the Naval for Columbia. Uh, larger paychecks, worse music, and more cocaine. So that's kind of the arc of his career. I think of the CTI, you know, his commercial instincts, his ambition, his incredible technique at that time kind of found the perfect mate with that label. You know, if you wanted to look at characteristically what could CTI do well, uh, look no further. We've talked a little bit about Hubert Laws. I guess, you know, I've, he's another artist that I've enjoyed in the label quite a bit. I don't go on to him here. I wanted to look at one kudu artist and then a couple oldsters that came to CTI. So on Kudu, if that's the way you say it, it's not Kudu or whatever, Grover Washington Jr., he was an artist growing up. I always associated with extremely MOR stuff. I don't know if that was entirely fair for his late 70s production, but he has a earlier career on Kudu, and I think these labels, uh, these recordings are very strong. I think the story was he took over for Hank Crawford, and I enjoy a lot of early Hank Crawford records too. So the ones I've heard, Soulbox, a strong recommendation on that, lots of fun there. Inner City Blues and A Secret Place. All of them tend to have at least one hardcore jazz cover. Grover has a very distinctive sound. He's a good groover. 
you know, is he a monster of his instrument to the level that a Freddie Hubbard is or a Hubert Laws is on flute? I, no, I don't think so. But I, I, I just find these performances and these productions um, very pleasing. And to do oldsters, relative oldsters who worked on CTI, just to touch on briefly, one was Milt Jackson. Milt makes three albums with the label Sunflower, Goodbye, and Olinga. Sunflower is the best known there. As I mentioned on, on Facebook, I think all of Milt Jackson's albums are kind of, Milt is there, but they strongly feature an additional instrumentalist. Sunflower is Freddie Hubbard, who wrote the title track. That's probably Milt's strongest album, strongly recommended. Goodbye, uh, with his amazing just a picture of a, of a, of a road sign. <laughs> Features Hubert Laws and Olinga with a bizarre shot of a pyramid. Features Jimmy Heath. I'd say it's the weakest of the three Olinga, but they're all good. I've got them all on vinyl. They're easy to find. Sunflower is the only one you'd have to spend any money on at all. They all sound fantastic. Finally, Paul Desmond, I've talked a couple different times about how much I like and how really one of the very first records I owned was Paul Desmond's Summertime. On A&M Records, it you know, really was a CTI production uh, with Don Sebesky producing. And, you know, that was the first of a handful of records I have. I still think it is a great marriage of somebody who, you know, both Jackson and Desmond, especially Desmond, can be a little recessive. I mean, I guess, you know, Jackson was a blues blower, but I, I never think of him as being able to dominate necessarily a session. I just, it's the nature of the vibes, the nature of the fact that I think he's always had a very mainstream sound. I mean, it's, he's a great player, but he's not surprising you necessarily with his licks or going out in weird harmonic places. Desmond was somebody that that really made his bones bouncing off a very extroverted pile driving player in Dave Brubeck. And so Desmond's probably best-known sessions are on RCA with Jim Hall, but Jim Hall's a recessive guitar player, and I just I don't know that those sessions, well, I know they don't catch fire. You may appreciate their subtleties more than I do. I quite like them. I mean, I, I'm glad I have them. I have them all, you know. But for me, Desmond's best moments as a solo artist are bouncing off other strong personalities. So the two albums he makes with Jerry Mulligan are just, to me, blue-chip, cool jazz milestones. I mean, I think they're among the handful of the best cool jazz recordings. Those tend to be drummerless quartets, with just the two of them playing off each other in amazing levels. And then I think he really does well in the CTI environment because they give him dramatic, challenging arrangements to bounce off of. And his mellow and his chill are framed by less mellow, less chill things. And there's a kind of productive tension there. 
And so I think Summertime is a standout. I think it's excellent. He does a Latin album called Out of the Hot Afternoon, which I think also just has amazing arrangements on it. And it's an interesting mix of songs. It's not like a whole bunch of Jobim. It's different things. Uh, there's a couple vocals on it. You know, that bothers you. If the swirling strings bothers you, I, I completely empathize. They don't bother me at all. I like them, but I, I get that they may be too, they may be too cocktail party for you. And then uh, he does Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is an album full of Paul Simon covers. And, you know, Simon was one of those writers in the 60s that jazz musicians felt a little bit more comfortable with. He seemed like more of an old-fashioned Tin Pan Alley song smith rather than somebody just kind of improvising on folk forms or doing extremely basic musical things that were hard to kind of turn into jazz. And I think that album's very successful. I, I've, I certainly read some people's comments where it's their favorite of his. Um, I, I think of that sequence of three, it's it's... It's probably third for me, but a lot of interesting stuff. And then on CTI proper, after they go independent, he does uh, Skylark and Pure Desmond. And I don't know that either of those records, which both involve smaller forces, are quite as successful. The sound is always just amazing. His tone is captured uh, on this label. I'm not the one to think of this. I think uh, other critics have pointed this out, uh, better known critics than me. Uh, it's just amazingly captured there. But because they were fairly aggressive and thoughtful and innovative about uh, providing context for him, I think he really thrived. So as one of the older generation, he's not ancient or anything, but just, you know, somebody who was not kind of a kid coming up in that CTI, I think he does very well. So those are just some recommendations. Honorable mentions, uh, Art Farmer does a sequence of records and the kind of later CTI. We've discussed at least one in some depth. I think they're fairly enjoyable. Joe Farrell, growing up, the amazing multi-readist who I love to death, plays tenor, plays Barry, plays flute, plays piccolo, plays English horn. I mean, he's just really good at anything he plays. Does a sequence on CTI. They tend to be more combo-driven affairs. He never gets his crazy orchestration showpiece the way some of these other musicians do. And I think a couple of them, Outback and Moon Germs, are extremely strong. And then the Joe Farrell Quartet is a little bit more progressive idiom, a little bit more avant-garde with Chick Corea. And I've got mixed feelings about it. And then he does two or three that are a little bit more rock funk. His collaboration with George Benson, I've never been conscious of what was going on in that uh, more than four minutes of a stretch. It just seems incredibly dull and sanded down and innocuous and, and boring. But maybe I'm missing something there. If you're a big lover of Benson and Farrell, which is a picture of a cigarette pack on it, let me know. 
I, I, I may have all these years just not caught on what they're doing, but my feeling is that nothing, nothing catches fire there. But Farrell's got a, a fine sequence, and again, those are very findable because his name was never as big as some of these other artists. And uh, Jim Hall does Concerto, and it is one of the gems in the CTI crown. I've not been able to find an original copy of this. I got a reprint that was a crap. I think the really fancy reprints are all OOP. I dream of getting a nice version of this album. Paul Desmond guests on it. Chet Baker guests on it. It's a little bit later in the CTI life story, and it's it's just a, a one-off masterpiece. Very chill. But, you know, he, he plays the same concerto that Miles Davis and Gil Evans work with. Very different. It's more of a string of solos. But in that kind of chill 70s mode, it just it works beautifully. And the rest of the album is quite strong. So those are just some mentions of CTI artists and albums. I know I missed a lot. Uh, they do some explicitly commercial stuff. You know, Ron Carter gets a few leader dates. I'm quite fond of one of those. You know, it. it the label is, is nowhere near as prolific. It's like a blue note. It doesn't last as long, but it, it has a pretty good run and there's a lot of stuff on it. So I'd love to hear from you guys. What have I missed? Who is the artist I should have talked about? Uh, is there a standout on the label that I didn't talk about? Mainly just because, you know, as, as I kind of collect this as, a, as an LP collector, I want to know what to look out for. But those are my thoughts is where you might begin with them. And again, I'm not trying to like sell you on this expensive and, and obnoxious and in practical hobby of collecting vinyl. But if you are already trapped in this sickness, CTI is a lot of bang for the buck. It is a guilty pleasure that that is very manageable, monetarily speaking, and often you can find pretty good examples. I feel like overall the pressings have held up pretty well. You know, obviously there are going to be some torn up ones. But, you know, if you're buying CTIs when they come out, you're probably not 18. You're probably 25 to 45. Uh, you're probably an adult. You might well have your first or second job. You're not a crazy kid. You're, you're probably putting the records back in their jackets. You're looking for that easy listening, chill sound. So, yeah, I mean, they, they tended to be well cared for. Final thoughts. As I think about CTI, I, I, in certain ways, I, I'm well aware that some of it turned into syrup. Some of them were misfires. Some of the classical pretensions didn't work that great. But at the same time, this idea of getting a, a 10 or a dozen of some of the world's greatest jazz musicians 
putting them in a sequence of recordings that had a visual identity and that had kind of an A&R identity in terms of the kinds of music that you're going to encounter there, uh, the kinds of grooves you're going to get, the kinds of production style you're going to get, and just making music that was attempting to reach an audience that wasn't just the initiates, that wasn't just the jazz obsessives, that wasn't just the guys with the encyclopedic knowledge of everything from 1920 forward, really has an appeal to me. Uh, I've said countless times, and I'm sure I'll say it again, I think jazz has made a terrible mistake in this emphasis on all originals or obsession with, I love either the Great American Songbook, and I, I love those standards. It took me years to learn them. I didn't know them as a kid. I know them now. A lot of them are just great. I, I'm never going to deny that these are great monuments of songwriters' arts. And then, you know, occasionally jazz covers for those who are just into the music. Those are all fine, but I think jazz musicians really honestly sort of have a duty to try to find music that more than a handful of people in their audience knows and show what it means to jazz it. It's a verb. And this is what these uh, guys on CTI did. They, they picked some music. They didn't pick just anything. You don't have to play it because it's top 10. You pick what you like out of the popular music of the time. And don't say there's nothing good out there because that's bullshit. There's always some good popular music and a lot of crap. And that was true in 1940 and 1960 and 1980. And now, you know, it's just the proportions are going to differ. There are moments of uh, surprising productivity and moments that things aren't so great. You know, I, I'm not going to deny that, but there's always good stuff floating out there. I mean, if nothing else, if you want like a song craftsman, Elvis Costello probably wrote 20 songs that any jazz musician could make hay from. He's probably not popular enough that that many people are going to know, but still more people know Elvis Costello that know who the fuck Milt Jackson is at this point, right? <laughs> Just Or who Cole Porter was, for that matter. Sadly, but true. So I, I like that idea. I like the idea of music that was very carefully produced. I like the idea that, you know, he grokked what I think, to some degree, Blue Note grokked, which was there's something in the collector's instinct that likes difference within uniformity, that likes a pattern that is not just mechanically stamped out but that you can see an underlying kind of aesthetic because then you want one more because it fits in with the group. And certainly a certain amount of your buyer's base is always going to be collectors, right? So, you know, a label that also had an aesthetic identity and, you know, some labels like ACT, like it or hate it, I mean, all their records have a look to them. So, you know, I guess my question for you listeners would be, if you had to pick like, let's say, 10 to a dozen musicians and you got your pick of a rhythm section, maybe a couple spare drummers, and then a few horn players that you like to rotate in and out of projects, let's say four or five a year, what would you put on your CTI 2022 roster, you know, or whatever you want to call the label? Uh, listener Productions, or Listener Incorporated, CTIs, Creed Taylor Incorporated, whatever it would be. Bob Jones Incorporated, Freddie Mercury Incorporated, whoever the whoever you are. Uh, who would those musicians be? And then where would you find your repertoire? Because, you know, clearly one of the weird things about CTI is that this obsession with classical music, you know, which doesn't appear on every record, but, but you know, Hubert Laws, there's a lot, and there's next to none on Freddie Hubbard, but, you know, turns up from time to time on these projects. And maybe that's not where you draw your, your extra energy from. Maybe it's reggae, or maybe it's heavy metal, or, you know, but, but just something that, you know, what is it that you'd like to hear jazz? And, you know, do you think this could work? I, probably not, but I just feel like it's not even attempted that, that everybody is the, the formula of self-expression 
the artist expressing him or herself and finding an audience in jazz tends to have completely gone over to just whatever the audience, the artist wants to do. doesn't matter what it is. It's just got to be true to himself or herself. We don't want to think about whether or not this makes sense to anybody but a handful of people. Just do it. And I think that aesthetically, in terms of lasting music, is as dangerous as just trying to pander and trying to figure out what the trend is and uh, whatever the kids like. I think either one of those polls can be really dangerous. So those are my thoughts. But what are your thoughts? Did you Do you like CTI? Do you collect them? Do you find them disgusting or overproduced or not jazz? Um, we can take it. Just let us know. And uh, thanks for your patience. Uh, normal service will resume shortly. Uh, tune in next time to the Jazz Bastard Podcast. What's going to happen? I don't know because I don't know when this one's going live. But I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. As always, you can find us at www.jazzbastard.com. You can download us from Apple Podcasts, from Mixcloud, from Stitcher, from Spotify. You can stream us on All About Jazz. You can look me up on All About Jazz. Email me at pat at jazzbastard.com. Try to email mike at jazzbastard.com. I would recommend carboning pat at jazzbastard.com on all such attempts. Or you could drop me a line on All About Jazz. Till next time, take care.